So people actually share more in common genetically with fungi than we do with plants, about 30% of our DNA. In the case of Paul Stamets, however, it's got to be much higher. <laughs> Few of us had any idea how totally fascinated we could be with mushrooms and fungi until we heard Paul speak. He's a kind of Pied Piper of mushrooms, a bio-ambassador on behalf of the mycelial web. Of all the diversity in the world, the fungi and the bacteria are among the least studied. Yet these are among the most ancient keystone systems that are foundational to all life on Earth. Recent molecular research suggests that fungi were here on land about a billion years ago and set the stage for the evolution of land plants about 300 million years later. Fungi are among the Earth's first decomposers, digesters, and recyclers, and so they are completely central to the food web. But we are largely clueless about their finer ecological functions. When you learn about all the things that fungi can do, it often seems miraculous. The work that Paul does with the fungal world is just the kind of magical realism that exemplifies what Bioneers is all about. Paul may have at last answered the ancient Zen question, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it fall? He knows that the fungi hear it immediately, and they communicate the news of this new food source almost instantaneously for miles around. He believes that the mycelial web infiltrating all of the world's land masses is central to our survival as a species, and no one has done more to bring this wondrous capacity of the fungal world to our attention. Paul has extensively explored the remarkable nutritional, medicinal, and entheogenic value of mushrooms. But his recent experiments on the potential of certain mushroom species to clean up even lethal toxins in the environment is some of the most brilliant and hopeful work to be found in any field. In this case, the solution is literally under our feet. Paul is a dedicated teacher and spokesperson, inoculating the culture and broadcasting spores far and wide. He has discovered multiple new species of fungi, or he likes to say, they discovered him. When he's not conducting research or growing his mushrooming business, he has found time to author five books, including the classics, The Mushroom Cultivator and Growing Gourmet and Medicinal Mushrooms. His next book, due out in June from 10-Speed Press, is called Mycelium Running, and it details his pathfinding research on the fungal capacity for habitat restoration. His company, Fungi Perfecti, is the top educational and technological resource for cultivators of medicinal and gourmet mushrooms. A dedicated hiker, Paul is a staunch defender of old-growth forests and their fungal biodiversity. He also has a powerful social vision that honors indigenous knowledge and opposes biopiracy, and he is prepared to bring this work, preparing to bring it, to impoverished countries and communities as well. He founded a research initiative called the Rainforest Mushroom Genome Project, which will be operating in the Amazon. He works closely on all these projects with his beloved partner and wife, Dusty Yao. The mushrooms couldn't have found more passionate or persevering allies than he and Dusty. He exemplifies pioneering as a person who has looked to nature for guidance in how we can preserve the diversity and integrity of the natural world, but also in how we can apply this knowledge to restoration. 
His work developing the mycotechnology of mushrooms and fungi has illuminated what are unquestionably some of the most promising and practical strategies for healing damaged ecologies as well as people. And as you'll see, it doesn't take an engineer, it takes a gardener. Please welcome Paul Stamets. Well, greetings. I'm honored to be here. And um, for a person who has a stuttering habit, uh, this is amazing to be in front of a crowd like this. So it's a, quite a challenge. I'm wearing my mushroom hat. This is from Fomis Fomentarius, when our tribal peoples migrated from Africa into Europe. Carrying fire was absolutely critical to human survival. This mushroom was pivotal in the human survival as we entered into the winter because you can bore out this mushroom and pack embers of fire into this mushroom and allows for the transportability of fire. And without being able to carry fire, our human species would not have survived. I really need to rock and roll. I have so much that I want to be able to show you. And I will talk fast, maybe not as fast as Carolyn Casey, but, <laughs> but I, want to, I want to thank my wife. Uh, she's the love of my life. I want to thank uh, my elders and all the experts who have preceded me. There's a chain of knowledge, and we build upon the body intellect of our ancestors. So I am here today, and there'll be others here in the future. So let's get into it. This is where we live. We live on Skookum Inlet in the southern reaches of the Puget Sound, and we have a farm right here. We moved there in 1984, and I started gardening with gourmet mushrooms, and I ended up cleaning up E. coli coming from the farm into the sensitive watershed. It's a saltwater estuary environment. We are dedicated hikers. We go into the Olympics, Washington State, and my wife and I love the old-growth forest. And this is where we consider it to be our church. On Sundays, we especially like to go to the old growth and collect mushrooms. We clone mushrooms out of the wild, and the way that we do it uh, has a very low impact. Uh, but I believe in saving the phenotypes, especially from endangered ecosystems. So we go up into the mountains, usually for three days to about a week. She is an expert in plant identification. I know mushrooms well. So once we get up into the high country, we, we literally can feed ourselves for days. Some of the mushrooms that we find in the old-growth forest are quite unique. This is Rosites caparata, the gypsy mushroom. It has a novel antiviral agent called RC-183 that Dr. Frank Prana from the University of Wisconsin Medical School first discovered a new class of antiviral medicines. This has really taken the medical community by surprise, and now there's a very deliberate search for new antiviral medicines coming from fungi. So I want to show you what happens with mushrooms in, in, in the forest. This is a mature Russula species. It's past its prime. Mushrooms produce slews of, an, of antibiotics because they, mushrooms simply don't like to rot. Um, but after they sporulate, they give themselves up, and bacteria and all sorts of other organisms use them as a food source. This is an overly mature mushroom, but I'm going to show you what happens to this mushroom over time. And the mushroom begins to rot, and spores germinate all over the gills, and the mushroom just melts into this mycelial mat. And it is the mycelium that is on this planet that truly has an inherent power of incalculable dimensions. And looking at the mycelium under the scanning electron microscope for years, I began to realize that these look like externalized neurological networks. 
465 million years ago, we shared a common ancestry with fungi. Fungi chose the path of digesting its nutrients externally. We chose the path of encirculating our nutrients. So we have a multiple layers of skin, five or six layers of skin. The mushroom mycelium only has one cell wall between a very hostile externalized environment. The fact that the mycelium in a one cubic inch can be more than a mile in the length of its cells shows you how pervasive they are. These membranes are full of receptor sites. They're interacting with nature constantly. And I believe that the mycelium is Earth's natural internet. It's sentient, it's intelligent, it's responsive, it's been here as long as we have, um, and it responds to catastrophia. This is the complexity of the fungal genome that gives us host, host defense uh, in being able to protect our environments from invasive diseases as well as being able to sustain other biological communities. So in looking at these neurological mycelial networks, I began to formulate some ideas, which over time now I think are, are proven to be true. I was very thankful when a group of Japanese researchers proved what they called cellular intelligence, and that putting a slime mold into a maze and then giving the slime mold two food sources, the slime mold at the point of inoculation was able to simultaneously split itself and choose the shortest distance possible, navigating through the maze directly to the food sources. I believe these cellular networks are indeed intelligent, and we are intelligent. And those people who argue with me saying, how can nature be intelligent? Their very argument is impugned by the fact that they're conceiving the concept. You know, nature's giving them, has given them their brain in order to articulate their argument. So, so I've been on the quest in finding the largest organism on the planet. This is probably the second one. This is a 1,200-acre mycelial mat in southern Washington. The largest organism in the world is a 2,400-acre mat in, in Oregon. It's caused by a honey mushroom called Armillary astoii. They form at the tops of the mountains. They kill the trees, and then lightning strikes on the tops of the mountains and causes fires. And these are the meadow makers. I've been a hiker for years wondering, why are these meadows all over the Cascades and Olympics when it's well below tree line? Well, in fact, the mushroom mycelium, I believe, are the meadow makers. For an organism to be 2,400 acres in size, 2,200 years old, it's killed the old growth forest at least four times over, and in doing so, it builds soil. These are the grand molecular disassemblers that break down plants in lignin cellulose and denaturing them into simpler forms that are usable to other plant communities. It's the thickening and the richness of the soil that, that leads to downstream increases in biological diversity. So the mycelium is sweats, enzymes, and antibiotics. And the suites of enzymes and antibiotics appear now to be customized to the challenges that it faces in nature. So it's able to adapt. These are extremely adaptive organisms. And so when I saw in Scientific American a model of the computer internet, it was very mycelial-like in form. I believe that the invention of the computer internet was an inevitable consequence uh, of the organization of matter in the universe. The organization of matter leads to life and life in the simplest form is simple mit mitotic cell divisions. And as these, as these cells replicate and, and, and grow, they fork and divide. There is no point-specific location on the computer internet or in the mycelial mats that you can damage it and harm the organism until it becomes fatal. So it reacts to catastrophia in an exquisite way, and it shares information. 
Now, I'm going to go way out, and this is from the Virgo Consortium, and this is a diagrammatic representation of dark matter. I'm an amateur astronomer, and many of you know 96% of the matter in the universe is not accounted for, and so it's been thought to be dark matter. The organization of dark matter uh, also conforms to string theory, and it's mycelial-like and its architecture. I believe this is an archetype of the universe. The mycelium, as well as the computer internet, as well as the organization of matter in the universe, all conforms to the same archetype. And now this is from Scientific American also, and these are galaxies uh, interspersed amongst the cobweb of dark matter. This is a spiraling galaxy, 2701 in Ursa Major. And then we'll zoom into Hurricane Isabel. And these cyclonic forms, I think, are part of the same archetype that I've been mentioning. And then an amazing, amazing photograph. This is a 37-acre mycelial mat in Montana. And this is a clone of a mushroom from one of the shapeshifter species that I found locally here that also forms this same type of cyclonic form. And so these are different orders of magnitude of the same universal truth. And the universal principles of power of, uh, in the universe, I think the mycelium is the archetype. So this is what it looks like. And I apologize for going fast, but I want to I show you something really cool. <laughs> And it becomes a mycofiltration membrane, and it captures nutrients and silts and bacteria and organic matter and digests it. The mycelium uh, transports water, so it rehydrates environments as it grows into it. They're great seekers. You can grow mushrooms on chairs. <laughs> they love everything, it seems, especially oyster mushrooms. You grow oyster mushrooms on money. And I'm, I'm happy to announce that NIH, NCAM, has just awarded us a 300,000 clinical research study with Dr. Donald Abrams at San Francisco General Hospital for treating HIV patients with oyster mushrooms because... <laughs> because... <laughs> oyster mushrooms have glycoproteins which have antiviral properties, but they also contain levastatin. And the problem with the protease inhibitors that HIV patients are taking, it interferes with lipid metabolism in the liver. Oyster mushrooms have all of these great ingredients within them. So we begin our clinical trials in January, the first clinical trials on mushrooms in America. So now oyster mushrooms also do amazing things. They produce these suites of enzymes that break the carbon-hydrogen bonds. So we were involved in a series of research experiments breaking down hydrocarbon-saturated soils with oil. Well, it's the same bond. So the lignine peroxidases, uh, as well as the cellulases, break these, break these hydrogen-carbon bonds. And so we did a competitive trial against four other companies up in Bellingham, Washington, to break down diesel-contaminated soil. So we mixed our oyster mushrooms in. And four weeks later, everybody came back to look at each pile. And the bacterial people still had a stinky pile. The people using enzymes still had a stinky pile. All of the chemical remedies also had a stinky, lifeless pile. They came back to our pile, pulled back the tarps, and it was covered by hundreds and hundreds of oyster mushrooms. The oyster mushrooms were perfectly edible. They were delicious. And something really significant happened. Not only the mushrooms were huge, which tells me that they're happy mushrooms, you know, <laughs> because they're so big. If you collect oyster mushrooms, you know these are mammoth. But then as the oyster mushrooms sporulated, they attracted insects. There's an intimate relationship between insects and fungi. And then as the, uh, they, and then the bacteria started breaking down the mushrooms, and then flies would lay uh, uh, eggs and larvae would develop. And then pretty soon birds would be coming in, going after the larvae. And so our pile became the only pile that became an oasis of life. 
And we broke down the PAHs, which are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, from 10,000 parts per million to less than 200 in eight weeks. And then, and then the plant communities came in. And so I think these are keystone species, these saprophytic fungi, that open up the door and create a domino effect leading to habitat restoration. These are extremely powerful organisms. They're our allies. And I believe they are intelligent. We need to engage them. They're all around us. They are urgently seeking our help to, to, to use them and being able to remediate many of the problems that we're exacerbating on the environment. So we started being involved with Amazon Watch and Excess Access, as well as a Matter of Trust, in using different strategies to break down oil spills in Ecuador. A hairdresser in this area has a patent on soaking up oil with hair. Uh, very cool. And so we started saprophytizing hair soaked with oil with oyster mushrooms. Hair is very inexpensive to collect, uh, and so we're mobilizing a group to go down to Ecuador using hair uh, to saturate the oil, then to break down the oil, injecting oyster mushrooms, which led me to a series of inventions, which I'm, I'm really happy to show. I've kind of broken the, the mold now on how to do this really easily, and we use burlap sacks. And the mycelium recognizes its own kind of architecture. And the fabric of these biodegradable cloths match up with the mycelium in a way that is totally surprising. And the mycelium runs like crazy. And the same mycelium put into wood chips and dispersed throughout does not have the same reaction. So then I started adding plants and mycorrhizal species. Then I put a little Douglas fir tree in the center. And so I created these mycopods now. So I've bunked these little pods that I can build like sandbags around hog farms, chicken farms, any, any type of estuary environments, anywhere where you want to ameliorate the impact of downstream contamination. So I believe this is the, the sequence that leads to habitat recovery. We found something with my work at Patel Laboratories that was astonishing. In uh, challenging E. coli cultures, the dreaded 0157 strain, the mycelium of the of Fomis fomentarius, this is hat that's made from, in advance of the mycelium are these crystalline messenger en entities that are octahedral that go in advance and encounter, in this case, the bacterial antigen or some other type of enemy, whatever you want to call it. Then they disintegrate, and the chemical scent trails are encountered by the creeping mycelium. And there appears to be a signal response that allows it to generate another secondary crystal. And these macro crystals, being much larger, become strange attractants to the E. coli, which then are motile, but they cluster around these crystals. They stop moving, and the mycelium gobbles them up. There is no cure for E. coli until we made this discovery. And this is... So some of the fungi that I was working with was uh, tested, to my surprise, and I accidentally received a classified document on the, the decomposition of CW and BW components, chemical warfare and, and biological warfare components. One of my strains from the old growth forest dephosphorylated VX in a heretofore unprecedented fashion. The VX is a very potent nerve toxin that Saddam Hussein did use. Um, and the, the problem with VX is once it's put in the environment, it's inhospitable to all vertebrates for, for hundreds of years. It does not break down. Well, one of the fungi from the old growth forest that we discovered broke it down in a heretofore unprecedented fashion. I present the argument that we should save the old growth forest as a matter of national defense. So, 
The turkey tail mushrooms were published in the Lancet in a clinical study resulting uh, with adjunct, adjunct therapy, with conventional therapy, causing a 22% increase in the five-year disease-free survival rate with gastric cancer. The use of mushrooms now with many physicians is a trend that's increasing. So turkey tail mushrooms is one that we grow. It's a fantastic species. It also breaks down PCBs. Go figure. You know, these mushrooms potentiate host defense of people and planet. And that's the common theme that I want to hammer home. It's a quirk of nature, you know, but aren't we a quirk of nature as well? So, <laughs> and we grow reishi mushrooms. We call this starship reishi. And, our, and we affectionately call our business starship FP, so uh, fungi perfecti. But they're beautiful to grow. And my good buddy and mentor, Andy Weil, he and I work together closely on many projects. This is Andy in one of our growing rooms. We grow mostly reishi, maitake. We have about 250 species in our culture library. We propagate about 25 species. And so one of the mushrooms that we grow also is Ganoderma aplanatum. This is a 35 to 40 year old species, the biggest one I've ever seen. One of my employees found it. And uh, we went into the old growth forest and he thought we had to pick the whole thing. And I go, no, 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 we don't have to pick the whole thing. All we need is a fragment of tissue the size of your thumbnail. So I carved it out with my knife, put it into a wax paper bag, took it back to our laboratories. I opened it up under sterile clean room conditions. I cloned it, and there it is. And that mushroom still grows in the old growth forest, but I've saved the phenotype now. And this is what I think is critically important. We go into these endangered habitats, we do mycological surveys, and we save as many species as possible before those habitats are destroyed. We need these species now. It's not 20 years or 50 years from now. We need them now. And if we end up losing our biodiversity and our fungal, uh, our fungal diversity, we are shortchanging future generations, as well as this generation's, from many important tools that we need in order to combat whatever you want to call terrorism, or as well as environmental toxins. This is really, really important. And it's also called the artist's concrete you can draw on it. So Ganoderma aplanatum, as well as Fomitopsis officinalis, which my wife has here, have very strong antimicrobial properties. This mushroom was first described by Dioscorides in 65 AD as a treatment against consumption, otherwise known now as tuberculosis. This mushroom also is revered by the Haida people. Uh, and the fact that these, the two different cultures, thousands of miles apart, separated by, uh, by huge, huge expanses in time, simultaneously discovered that these mushrooms had antimicrobial properties, you know, speaks to the body intellect that we all experientially contribute to over time. So this is the, was the largest mushroom in the world, Oxyporus nobilismus, now known as Brigioporus nobilismus. It grows in the old growth forest exclusively of Washington and Oregon. There's only six locations known, uh, and we cannot yet cultivate it. It's a testimonial to it's a very sophisticated immune strategy that prevents parasitization. We are here today because on the evolutionary path, our ancestors made some very smart choices in preventing becoming infected, and our immune systems of our body and our habitat share that in common. This mushroom is chicken of the woods. It's very effective against Staphylococcus aureus. And then I want to segue into a very important discovery that I have made. Others have made these discoveries, the associations of termites with mushrooms. And this is a Termitomyces robustus. This is a mushroom that's cultivated by termites. They don't mind if you pick it. But the interrelationship between fungi and insects is extremely important. So Cordyceps sinensis is a very important medicinal mushroom. Many of you are aware of it. And now for the first time, I can reveal my invention. This past two weeks, the patent office has given me an issuance of allowance. I have a breakthrough revolutionary patent. 
The patent has now been split into two. There could be literally a hundred derivative patents. But I have discovered something that no other mycologist has discovered. Over 500 are employed by the pesticide industry throughout the world. Um, this is a metarhizium anisoplea. This is the same culture. But uh, Dow Chemical, Monsanto, uh, lots of other pesticide companies invest a lot of money on spores infecting and killing insects. And so this is the number one fungus in the soil, the number one pathogen of insects. Every insect in the world is parasitized by a fungus. But when they build bait traps, you know, the insects aren't stupid. They know the plague when they smell it. So they come up to the bait traps, and they'd smell these spores, and they turn tail and run. Because they get close to them, they get infected. I believe in fungal intelligence, and I believe that nature is intelligent. And so when I heard that the insects don't like these spores, and the insects know that these fungi are pathogens, then I surmised that the fungi know that the insects know. So in my house, which is that pitiful house that's being torn down this winter, it's falling down, eaten by carpenter ants, I put out mycelium of that strain onto grain. My daughter had to go pee. She woke up at 1 o'clock in the morning, walked by, and it was covered with carpenter ants. And they were eating it, and they take it to the queen. And here's an example of the attractancy. I discovered what a field is called super-attractants, micro-attractants. I believe every insect in the world can be attracted with extracts of these fungi that are species-specific and target-specific. And when the insects become infected, then they, this carpenter ant insect climbs to the top of the canopy in Costa Rica and locks its mandible into a leaf, and then a cordyceps mushrooms comes directly out of the ants. In the pre-conidial, pre-sporulating stage, the mycelium that would never be presented to the queen is carried to the queen as an ambrosia food. The queen then distributes it throughout the nest. The nest then is infected with the mycelium as a narcotic. They love it. Uh, and then they start slowing down and they end up dying. And so this is an example. It's a feeding stimulant, it's an attractant, and it's also a delayed release pathogen. This is with the extract, with forward flies, dung flies. It's the exact same preparation without the mycelium, the control. And this is what we see over and over and over again. And so I just want to leave you with, with the, the concept that fungi are intelligent. Nature is intelligent. It's the sharing of communication that is integral to the potentiation of the health of our environment. We need to engage nature as allies, not as tools, but as friends and as allies. Thank you very much.